listening to Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, episode 34, Ilga Weiss. Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, is a tribute project started by Springfield businessman Jim Malden in the early 2000s. Then, more than a decade later, the project reached Friends of the Garden at Nathaniel Green Close Memorial Park in Springfield, Missouri. Black gum trees were planted in 2012 at the northern edge of the park and symbolized the legacy left by ethnic community leaders. Each tree stands for an Ozark citizen who has left a lasting positive impact on their community through service, generosity, and tenacity. Each story is maintained and immortalized by a story keeper who has volunteered to ensure the legacy of the storyteller lives on. Ilgeweiss's story contains descriptions of violence that may not be suitable for all listeners. In my native country of Latvia, one of the most popular elements of the culture is the Names Day tradition. Each and every first name is assigned to a day on the yearly calendar. While your birthday may be celebrated privately or with family members, your Names Day will often inspire a wider range of people to send cards or bring you flowers or candy. My name, Ilga, is September 8th. It is a variation of Olga, a common Russian name, or the German Helga. Sometimes two middle names are given. Mine are Vera Veronica, in honor of my godmother. Our last name is hyphenated. Kate's Peglis, not a common custom in Latvia. My Estonian-born grandfather's name was Otto Kate's. After he moved to Latvia, people kept asking him what Kate's meant. The Latvian translation is Peglis, which means juniper in English. The use of all of my names was rather cumbersome. Ilga Vera Veronica Kate's Peglis. In everyday life, mercifully, it was shortened to Ilga Kate's. Friday the 13th is considered an unlucky date by many people. I maintain that it was a fortunate beginning for me on April 13th of 1934, when I arrived between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning at a hospital in Rega, the capital city of Latvia. Located on the eastern shore of the Baltic Sea, Latvia is one of the three Baltic republics, the other two being Lithuania to the south and Estonia to the north. Russia borders on the east, Belarus to the southeast. Winters are dark and long, but during the cool, short summer, nearly 20 hours of sunlight brighten the longest day of the year. The land area of Latvia, 24,595 square miles, is less than half of Missouri's. Latvia's vegetation is diverse, consisting of several species of evergreens and numerous deciduous trees. Tall, stately pines grow along the shore of the Bay of Riga. During a storm, they sway and bend, but do not break. Before the days of steamer ships, they were sought after as masts for sailing ships. Inland, the pine forests spread a canopy above the lush moss carpet, dotted with mushrooms. 
The swooping branches of fir trees make you wish for Christmas candles on them. Legend claims that the Christmas tree custom originated from Latvian fir trees. Maples add dazzling colors every autumn. I remember that my grandmother strung the leaves on a thread in long garlands and hung them in the pantry to dry. She arranged loaves of rye bread on the fragrant leaves before placing them in the coal oven to bake. The linden trees bloomed in the spring, and their tiny blossoms were gathered and dried and brewed in a delicious tea. The birch trees were my favorites. The white bark sparkled in the distance as we approached on my grandfather's farm. Seeing them filled me with anticipation about an upcoming visit. In early spring, the trees were tapped and the sap collected in buckets, yielding a slightly tart, clear juice. Almost tree size, bushes were chocked full with hazelnuts, which we gathered in the fall. Cranberry shrubs grew in the marshes. Jumping from one clump to the next lent excitement to berry picking, and blueberries were the sweetest. The rule for us children was that you could eat off the bush as much as you wanted, but once the berries were in the bucket, they had to stay there. A perfusion of wild flowers grew along the road and in the fields blue rye flowers, daisies, buttercups, sweet clover, and tiny chamomiles made into a calming tea. Throughout my life, I have carried with me the memory of the forests, the taste of the berries, and the enchanting scents of the countryside. Beginning with the 13th century, Latvians have been ruled by foreigners, starting with Germans, then the Swedes, the Poles, and even our neighbors, the Lithuanians and the Russians. With Russia and Germany exhausted at the end of World War I, the Latvians seized the moment and declared independence on November 18, 1918. For another year, the ragged and outnumbered Latvian freedom fighters, with the help of Estonians, battled the Russians. Finally, freedom was won. The next 20 years were filled with exuberance and pride. At last, we were our own masters in our small corner of the world. The red, white, and red Latvian flag, adopted in 1918, was displayed on every holiday at every house. My parents were barely into their teens when Latvia gained her independence in 1918. They had lived through the ravages of World War I. My father, Janis Edgars Kates Peglis, was born on June 9, 1905, close to the town of Auxne, in the eastern region known as Vidzime. Janis was the third son in a family of seven brothers and one sister. As a child, one of my favorite folk tales was about the seven brothers and a sister. It was a magical fairy tale and made me think of my aunt and uncles as enchanted beings. They were fun-loving and mischievous, with beautiful voices, each one able to play several of the available instruments. A guitar, a violin, an accordion, a mandolin, and a zither. Each family get-together turned into a song-fest, a Latvian national pastime. Grandfather's farm was able to support the large family. Wheat, rye, oats, and barley grew in the fields. A large vegetable garden supplied daily meals with potatoes, carrots, and cabbages stored in the root cellar for the winter. A variety of animals lived on the farm and provided amusement for me on our visits. A horseback ride was a thrill, but my most memorable ride was on a pig. As my father and some uncles inspected a huge sow and her piglets, 
He made a bet that she was big enough to ride. Midst laughter, father placed me on her back. Hanging on to the stiff bristles and squealing along with the pig, I won the bet for my dad at the age of four. Father was the first in his family to go beyond the sixth grade, which was the norm in his day. Along with all the basic subjects, the study of languages was emphasized. Latin, French, Russian, and his favorite, German, which he mastered thoroughly. Opportunities were limited in the small town, so Janice left for Rega and enlisted in the Latvian Army and Air Force, which was viewed as a noble profession. The rigors and discipline of military life agreed with him, and he rose to the lieutenant rank, serving in the Air Force's communications division as a navigator. The planes he flew were double-winged, propelled by a single engine, a far cry from today's jets and rockets. An avid reader all his life, Janus kept up with the political developments in Europe. The center of attention was his when he returned to the farm, bringing the latest news from Rega and all around the world. The news sparked a lively debate, as my uncles took different points of view, just for the sake of argument. To sum up my father's personality, I would have to say that he was very sociable, was generous with his family and friends, and exuded boundless energy as he held forth on every topic. My mother, Brona Zenta Vaver, was born on November 23, 1906. Early in her childhood, she learned Russian, and she spoke it fluently for the rest of her life. She knew enough German to communicate about the necessities. Arriving in the States at age 45, without formal instruction, she mastered the English language admirably. At an early age, children did daily chores of milking cows, feeding chickens, helping in the kitchen, and working along with the adults at harvest time. Girls learned to spin wool, weave, knit, crochet, and the basics of dressmaking. Mother's formal education stopped in the sixth grade, yet she had a good mind and was a fast learner. At 16, she left for Rega to work as a maid in the home of a government official who served in the diplomatic corps. The job provided an opportunity to master the art of cooking fine goods, bake everything from rye bread to delicate pastries, acquire good manners, and learn how to run a household. A large portion of her wages was sent to her father in order to pay for the farm. Later on, she worked in a tailor shop and became an accomplished seamstress. Early in life, she became self-reliant. A strong faith in God gave her an inner strength and serenity that helped her through the difficult times. Zenta was witty and industrious, with a marvelous sense of humor and timing. Above all, she was a good listener. People who were with her were taken with her quiet charm. And so was Janice when their paths crossed in Rega in the later part of the 1920s. Rega was a dazzling place with majestic buildings, monuments, and wide boulevards filled with streetcars and buses. Young people from all over the country were moving to the capital city, including four of my father's brothers, as well as my mother's younger brother and her youngest sister. Close-knit family ties were maintained. Today, Rega, with its nearly one million inhabitants, is a treasure house of architectural marvels, ranging in style from modified Baroque to Art Nouveau, with ornate decorations of animals, intricate designs, and human figures. Rega is the leading financial, industrial, and transportation center for the Baltic region, with rail lines connecting it to the rest of Europe and east into Russia. 
Growing up in the days before television, and with few radios, I remember that the main form of entertainment was singing. When people gathered, there was plenty of good food and strong ale, but above all, singing. Since my father and his brothers were natural-born musicians and loved playing various instruments, they had a ready-made family band. Everyone knew the folk songs, and they were sung with gusto. In the countryside, preparation for festivities started weeks ahead. Special cheese with caraway seeds was prepared, and beer was brewed. The farmyards were swept clean and decorated with flowers. Everyone dressed up in a national costume, distinct to the region. Women wore flower wreaths, while men's were fashioned from supple oak branches. Torches were hoisted on tall poles, and bonfires lit up the farmyards. My grandfather's farm was near a small brook, in ever-so-gently rolling hills. At dusk, a group of revelers carrying torches streamed from one farm to the next. Song fests were held at seven- or ten-year intervals. Folk dance performances were added as well. The festivals continued throughout Latvia's period of independence, from 1918 to 1939, with each consecutive staging bringing additional participants and more spectators. Songs from neighboring countries were also performed. By 1939, Hitler's armies were on the march in Europe. The Soviet Union was pressuring Latvia to permit Russian naval bases in our ports and demanding land concessions from Finland. Against this background of mounting tensions, a song festival was held in Riga. Even though I was only five years old, I felt apprehensive as I listened to the adults voice their fears and sorrow that our country's short-lived independence was about to end. On the program was Finlandia, the national anthem of Finland. As the melancholy strains filled the air, people wept in the stands. They were crying not only for Finland— but for Latvia as well. During the nearly 50 years of Soviet occupation, the festival tradition was allowed to continue in order to show the world that the Republic of Soviet Socialist Latvia was free to maintain its national identity. However, some of the most beloved Latvian folk songs were banned, and only the ones approved by the Soviet government were performed. My earliest memories are a blur of packing, rushing to the railroad station, a train ride, a new town, smiling faces greeting us, an empty new house. The pattern repeated itself several times as we moved back and forth between Rega and Gulben and back again. Father's Air Force squadron was assigned to a base in Gulben, in the northeast part of Latvia, close to his birthplace, and near the border with the Soviet Union. We lived in a rented house, on the edge of the airfield, a walking distance from the hangar and the barracks where my father was stationed. Directly across the airfield was the town itself. My cousin, Richie, came to live with us that first summer and stayed for a year. His father, my mother's brother, had died suddenly, leaving Richie and his mother in deep sorrow. Family members reasoned that the fresh air and the change would be good for Richie and would give his mother some time to recover from her grief. That suited me fine, since I now had a playmate. Three other boys lived down the street. The youngest was Richie's age. I was nearly a year younger than all of them, and I was a girl. 
If I wanted to be part of the group, I had to play boys' games, mostly war games. On Saturdays, farmers drove their buggies to town to sell produce, baked goods, and other handmade items. People came to buy, visit, and exchange news of the day. Mother tended to a large garden, kept chickens, geese, a few goats, and lots of rabbits. Richie and I helped feed the animals and thought of them as our pets. A problem arose when rabbit stew was served. My parents led an active social life. Father's buddies often gathered for a game of cards that lasted well into the night. Air Force friends came to dinner and ended the evening with singing. Social events also took place at the airbase, which we attended dressed in our very best. Under the Soviet occupation, the next 12 months came to be known as the Year of Terror, a year of silence. Latvians who had been in positions of leadership, either in the government, education, or civic organizations, were arrested and imprisoned. Some just disappeared. Freedom of the press was gone, and only the Communist Party line was published. Neighbors were encouraged to report on each other, and mistrust grew. Considering the size and military might of the USSR, resistance to the invasion would have been futile. The Latvian army personnel were given no choice as they were counted over into the Red Army under Russian officers. Instruction in communist doctrine was part of the process. My father, always the debater, challenged the Red Commissar without realizing he was putting himself in danger. The summer of 1941 brought a complete news blackout by the Soviets, yet people knew that something big was in the offing. In the early part of June, we were once again taking the train to Rega. Rows of freight cars lined the tracks and every station we passed on the way. Their small windows were fitted with steel bars. We arrived at my uncle's apartment in the late evening. After a prolonged knocking, he finally answered the door. He was very agitated. Did we not know what was happening? The secret police were rounding up people and taking them away. All night long, father and my uncle watched by the window as black vans pulled up to adjacent apartment buildings and hauled people away. The date was June 14th. Years later, the Latvians came to commemorate this date as a day of mourning for the 35,000 victims of mass deportation to Siberia. We came very close to being a part of that statistic. As we returned to Gulben, Richie joined us for his summer vacation. Father reported to duty at the airbase and was placed on high alert, unable to leave the barracks. Hitler had broken the secret pact with Stalin and, on June 22nd, ordered his army to attack the Soviet Union. German forces rapidly raced across our borders, on their way toward St. Petersburg, about 300 miles to the northeast. Before the Germans reached Gulben, the elementary school principal rode his bicycle to warn Mother to leave our house immediately. From school records, he knew that certain families were on a list to be deported by the Soviets. An earlier minor misunderstanding between Mother and a communist youth leader may have been the reason. Quickly, she gathered a basket full of freshly baked bacon rolls, a jug of apple cider, and some blankets. Her friend and next-door neighbor, also an Air Force wife, and her three small boys joined us. Avoiding the main road, we hurried toward the surrounding woods. 
The next two weeks we spent in the forest, sleeping under pine trees at night and constantly changing our location by day. Mother and her friend took turns bargaining for food at farmhouses along the forest's edge. The fear that someone would report us to the Soviets was ever-present. For the next few days, we changed our sight as often as we could. Richie and another one of the boys got measles. My turn came next. Mother ventured out to look for food, and we heard that the Russians had withdrawn and the Germans were taking over Golben. We made our way back to town, stopping at a farm where Mother knew the owner. To our surprise, Father was there. He managed to escape from his Air Force unit shortly after being ordered to leave for the Soviet border. The father of the three boys had not been so lucky. We returned home, where, in a darkened room, Richie and I recovered from the measles. Only then did we learn that our house had been searched a few hours after our escape into the woods. The closest elementary school to our house, on the edge of Gulben, had a dormitory for the country kids, while the town children, like myself, walked home every day. At the age of six, I had the option of waiting a year before starting. Since I could read, Mother asked me if I wanted to go anyway. I did not. But one day, passing the school near the end of summer, I decided to explore the place. The principal was working in the building and invited me in. He knew my parents. Did I want to start school in the fall? Yes, I did and I knew all the necessary information for him to sign me up. For some reason, I never mentioned this encounter to my parents. A week before school was to begin, the principal checked on them to finalize my enrollment. My mother had to work very fast in order to finish sewing my school uniform, a dark blue dress with a white collar and a black apron. By early fall 1941, we moved back to Rega, the chaos that followed the German takeover is hard to imagine for anyone living in a country that has not been occupied by a foreign power. Reprisals against those who had cooperated with the communist regime were swiftly carried out. No retaliation was taken against Father for his service in the Red Army, since he had been given no choice in the matter, and was now considered a deserter. Father was just a year past the age limit for introduction into the German army. Yet, due to his German language skills and previous army training, he was assigned as a civilian support worker to a transport unit. His duties varied from translator to ammunition truck driver, an assignment that proved ever more dangerous as the Soviet planes increasingly targeted German supply lines. During this period, I attended a different school every year, even transferring in the middle of the third grade, resulting in my worst-ever school experience. The tightly-knit group of girls was not about to accept a newcomer into its midst. Adding to the difficulty was the introduction of German language study into the curriculum. I was frequently absent due to ear infections and other winter diseases. A caring teacher spent extra time with me, causing my antagonists to label me as a teacher's pet. My only consolation was Richie. We thought of each other as brother and sister, not just cousins. In the spring of 1943, with the ever-increasing Russian air raids, father rented a cottage in the outskirts of Rega. No children my age lived nearby. My tiny dog, Foxy, a Pomeranian breed who looked like a small fox, kept me company. In May, my favorite Aunt Anna had a baby girl, Erica. 
Mother and I spent lots of time with the both of them. The predicted quick victory of the Germans turned into disaster. Their losses were mounting each month and were tragically brought home to our family in February of 1944, when my father's youngest brother, Adolphs, was killed in action. Father and the rest of the family took this loss very hard. As spring of 1944 arrived, we decided that it would be best for Aunt Anna, Erica, Mother, and me to move to a rented place on the Bay of Rega, located about 20 miles from the city. When he could, father joined us on the weekends. Mother often took the train to Rega to stand in lines for whatever food items were still available. Near the end of the summer, the low rumble of artillery guns was unmistakable, as the Soviet army advanced along the southern border of Latvia, burning a town only 30 kilometers away. In a near panic, we hurried back to Rega. Father could not risk being captured by the Russians and planned to flee with the Germans. He was determined to take all of us with him, including Aunt Anna and Erika. He requested permission from the German officer in charge to allow us to ride in the woodchip truck he had been driving. By October 11, 1944, the Soviet forces were on the outskirts of Rega and the German unit prepared to leave. Everything on wheels was headed for the main bridge. The congestion was horrendous. As night came, so did more air attacks. We scrambled down from our perch on the woodchip truck and spent the night in the nearest air raid shelter. Aunt Anna made a difficult choice. She would remain in Rega with Erica, in her own apartment, where she stood a better chance of surviving than on the road. With silent tears and hugs, we said our very difficult goodbyes. Another night of shelling and bombing kept us pinned down in the shelter. The next day, we were very close to the bridge. As daylight faded, the dreaded Russian planes returned, dropping bombs, shattering glass, filling everything with a deafening noise, smoke and dust, and a burning smell. We crouched in doorways when no basements could be found. Around eight o'clock, we reached the bridge and inched across it, leaving behind the familiar skyline illuminated by fires and the explosions of heavy artillery. Years later, we learned that near midnight the Germans blew up the bridge in order to slow down the Soviet pursuit. The date was October 13, 1944, the day the Soviet army captured Rega. The caravan continued westward toward the port of Lyapaya. After father turned in the truck, his job with the German transportation group was over, and we were left to find lodgings. For the moment, the front lines seemed far away. We dared to hope that perhaps the Germans would regroup and push back the Soviet troops. Maybe in a few weeks, we would be able to return home to Rega. Just a few kilometers from Lyapaya, a farmer agreed to rent us a room. The house was quite small, without electricity or indoor plumbing. The owner let us stay in a cramped bedroom while he and his wife slept in the living room and kitchen. The root cellar was located close to the house. Heavy beams formed the roof and were covered by a thick layer of dirt overgrown with grass. The meager supplies were stored there for the coming winter. It would also serve as a bomb shelter should we need it. The feeling of safety we had experienced when we first arrived didn't last long. 
By mid-November, more and more German troops crowded around the farmhouse and filled the city of Liapaya. The Russian planes made bombing runs both day and night. German anti-aircraft guns rained shrapnel all around us as we dashed for the root cellar. Even more ominous were the constant reverberations of heavy guns that made the ground shake and moved closer each day. As December approached, it was clear that the Germans would not hold back the Red Army. The Russians had captured part of southern Lithuania, thus gaining access to the Baltic Sea and cutting off all land routes to Germany. A sea voyage was the only option left. Daily, Father went to go speak with the authorities, trying to obtain the proper papers that would guarantee a safe passage to the western part of Germany, well out of the Russian reach. Finally, he obtained the needed documents. German transport ships accepted a few civilians, providing there was space. The wait continued, and so did our uneasiness. We had brought my dog, Foxy, with us this far, and none of us could bear to leave her behind. Mother sewed a large pocket for Foxy on the inside of my coat. One day, a storm blew in from the west, a good omen preventing the Russian planes from flying. The following day, on December 10, 1944, as dusk fell and the wind subsided, we boarded the ship that would take us away from our homeland, only temporarily, we thought. It was a restless night, and we slept with our bundles and suitcases, huddled in a small storage area. A gray morning greeted us as we moved in to the port of Konigsberg. A group of soldiers boarded the ship. We watched as the captain talked with them, frequently glancing in our direction. He told us that plans had changed. He was sailing back to Latvia, and we had to disembark here and now. The waiting truck would take us to a station, and we would travel westward by train. The stone-faced soldiers, with their guns, joined us on the truck. In the station, we were herded to a platform where other people were waiting, none of them German. More soldiers surrounded us. A high-ranking SS officer appeared. Father approached him with passport and travel papers. He wanted to know where we were going and why we were being guarded by soldiers. Suddenly, another SS officer strode toward us. He was young, with an empty coat sleeve folded onto his belt, where the arm should have been. Perhaps alerted by the quick motions and clicking boots, Foxy jumped out of my coat pocket and barked loudly, nipping at the feet of the German. He whipped out his gun and pointed it at Foxy. In an instant, I fell on top of her, crying. Swearing loudly about the damned foreigners, he ordered me to move or he would shoot the both of us. Mother rushed to my side. The other SS officer intervened and spoke quietly to the angry officer as he pointed to the travelers standing on the opposite platform. The commotion had attracted everyone's attention, and people were watching with shocked looks on their faces. The out-of-control officer waved his gun and argued, unable to calm down. It probably would have been a bad public relations move for an SS officer to shoot a child and a dog in front of everyone. The man stormed off, leaving us all shaken and silent. A train pulled up and we were herded into empty cars, accompanied by soldiers, all carrying guns. I cannot remember how long we rode the train from Konigsberg, maybe just a few hours. 
I only remember that the train stopped in a snowy countryside, close to an airfield, which was surrounded by a high barbed wire fence. Several guards opened the gate, fortified with more barbed wire. A large hangar loomed across the field. Single-story barracks were spaced all around it. The soldiers ordered us to walk into the hangar. We passed a barracks, which was cornered off by more barbed wire. Arms reached through the wire. Women in raggedy clothes, hollow-eyed and skeleton-thin, begged us for food. On their tattered coats was sewn the yellow Star of David. It was a horrific moment. If anyone wondered what the future held, it was in front of us, written on the faces of those women. They were all captives, imprisoned under the rule of men with guns. What some people still may not know is that besides Jews, the Germans enslaved people from all parts of Eastern Europe. Poles, Lithuanians, Estonians, Slovaks, Czechs, Hungarians, and Latvians. Thousands were victims, along with the millions of Jews, of what was to become known as the Holocaust. I have since learned that besides the most notorious concentration camps, there were as many as 15,000 forced labor camps. Our confinement only lasted a month, but it seemed much longer. An incident which I witnessed has stayed with me vividly throughout my life. Several years ago, I wrote about it and entitled it Ice Flowers. Ice Flowers, near Konigsberg, East Prussia, December 11, 1944. Tall wooden posts are strung with an ugly barbed wire in the flat, frozen landscape. Inside the barbed wire fence, Dreary long row barracks squat along the outer edge of an airfield. Guards in heavy coats, with tall collars and large winter hats, surround us. They keep their faces hidden. Their heavy leather boots crush the snow as they march. Rifles slung over their shoulders, with deadly bayonets, jab at the sky. There must be some mistake, Father says while holding his passport in a trembling hand. I must speak to the commander. I have the proper papers. They guarantee a safe passage to the west. This is too close to the Eastern Front. The Eastern Front. I often heard the grown-ups talk about it in hushed voices. Hitler's armies were well-equipped. The best in the world, they said. The Front was something far away, somewhere in the frozen vastness of Russia. Something dreadful. It always made me shudder. In the surrounding crowd, an old man next to us leans toward my father and lowers his voice to a whisper. The German army is retreating. Confusion and bedlam are everywhere. What good are your papers? The German commander bellows. You will form the people's storm. You will help stem the Russian tide. Our mighty army will repel the enemy. We will crush the sub-race to the east. The east? Aren't we from the East? We are from Eastern Europe, where opposing armies have clashed and shattered everything in their paths. People's storm, mocks the old man in a quiet voice. Look around you. What do you see? Women, children, and unfit men who were rejected from army duty, gathered from the last corners of Europe. We are not the master race. We're foreigners, the leftovers, the dispendables. 
The crowd around him starts to shift nervously away from him. This can't be happening to us, Mother says in disbelief. Her eyes search other eyes, as if seeking comfort from them. Clutching their bundles, women pull their children closer to stare vacantly. No one looks at my mother. I alone keep my eyes on her, fighting down a feeling of panic. Why are we being herded like cattle into these barracks? Mother's voice rises above the hushed, subdued crowd. No talking, move along. A guard shoves her suddenly with a rifle. Stunned, in numb silence, my mother follows the orders and slowly moves toward the barracks along with others. Men line up on the right, orders the commander. Women, children to the left, move, move. He parts the mass of bodies with undisputed might, his stripes and medals hanging from ribbons attest to his rank, power, and valor. With renewed courage, Father tries to explain. Commander, we are a family, my daughter and my wife. We want to stay together. You will be together soon enough, even before sunrise. An SS officer clamps his hand on my father's arm and forcefully shoves him to the other side. You will be working together starting tomorrow. Take these men away, the officer orders the guards. The soldiers encircle the bewildered men and march them toward the far side of the airfield, where more barracks squat near the fence. Crude wooden bunk beds, four and five levels high, ascend to the ceiling. In endless rows, they fill the barracks. Coarse burlap sacks are filled with straw and cover the wooden slats of each bed. A single bare light bulb swings from a wire. A strong stench of stale air overtakes us. The cement floor is rough and frigid, littered with straw and filth. The soldiers count us with the sharp tips of their rifles, order us, push us in a line next to each stack of bunks. Women flinch and retreat from each thrust of the rifles. They stare at the soldiers, uncomprehending and quivering. This is a nightmare. This can't be real, Mother whispers. These things don't happen in civilized countries. Women and children shovel sand, mix limestone, add water, then pour cement into immense forms. Men lift the solid concrete blocks onto flatbed trucks. Father bravely approaches the commandant and pleads with him. She is only ten years old. It is too hard for her to shovel sand all day. This is wartime, you goddamned foreigners, shouts the commandant as his face turns red and his voice reaches hysterical levels. We are building fortifications to defend our fatherland. These cement blocks will stop Russian tanks. We must stop the tanks. In utter silence, all eyes stare at him. No one moves. During the next few days, the guards seemed preoccupied. Some of the high-ranking officers left with their bags. As the sun rose on January 13th, we were ordered to assemble outside the barracks. The German commander announced that we were free to go, and he pointed toward the rising sun. Hurriedly, he jumped into a waiting car and drove off in the other direction. For an instant, the crowd stood transfixed, then broke in all directions as people grabbed their things, some heading where the German had pointed. My father's thorough knowledge of geography guided us for the next two months. His ability to ask the right questions helped us to survive. 
As we trudged, a blizzard overtook us. Father acquired a sled from a German farmer, and we piled our suitcases on it. In the storm and crush of wagons, trucks, and people, we encountered a Latvian family of six from the labor camp. There were the parents, their three children, ranging from eight to fifteen, and the father's sister. None of them spoke German, so they asked to come with us. It was a difficult decision. It would be easier just for the three of us to travel. Yet how could father turn down a Latvian family under these circumstances? They threw their belongings on our sled and helped pull it. Traveling along the narrow strip of land between the Baltic and the inland waterway proved to be a grueling experience. Everyone was fleeing westward, civilian mixed in with the retreating German army. Low-flying Russian planes took direct aim at the packed road, dropping bombs and firing machine guns on people who tried to get away. Many did not reach safety. In one small settlement, a German lady let us spend the night, one of only two times we slept in a house during our two-month walk. I remember hanging onto the ropes of the cart, walking until I fell asleep, falling down, getting up, and walking some more, and repeating the routine several times. It was a daily race to stay ahead of the advancing Russian army. As we left town early in the morning, the Russians captured it by noon or that evening. At times, it seems as if this race could not be won. The planes kept coming, bombing the road full of retreating army vehicles and refugees. There were casualties, both people and horses. Food was scarce. Some towns had soup kitchens to feed the refugees, a most welcome relief. Mother had dried a portion of the meager bread full of sawdust given to us at the labor camp. Those hard slices were lifesavers on our journey. The checkpoints continued to pose a danger for us. Father learned that foreigners were still being rounded up. The prolonged cold and lack of food was taking a toll on all of us. I suffered from almost constant dysentery. If one of the kids became ill, we got to ride on top of the cart. One of the German guards, stationed on a bridge, remarked, You have made it to safety. What a feeling of relief. From the start of our trek to this point, we had walked close to 300 miles. The productive province of Mecklenburg stretched before us. Winter was retreating. We slackened our pace. On a sunny day in a wooded area, we heated water and took a sponge bath, the first one in nearly two months. We even washed our hair, now full of lice. Rostock was a picture postcard town, with a church steeple above the square, all tidy and neat. The fighting seemed far away. Our hard-working horse had shown signs of strain and fatigue. Half days and rest stops were as much for her benefit as ours. Past Wismar, we headed for Lübeck, our final destination when we first boarded the ship in Latvia. The ancient city had sustained bomb damage. As if to remind us that the war was not over, the sound of an air raid siren made us scramble for cover. We feared the Allied Air Force much more than the Russians. By the morning of March 17th, we were approximately 15 miles west of Lübeck and had slept soundly the night before in a sweet-scented hay barn with our horse nearby. Unable to rise, with labored breathing, she lay on the ground, dying. None of us could hold back the tears. 
The feisty mare had saved our lives, and now we could do nothing for her. Our sympathetic German farmer offered to drive us to the nearest town, Juten, where a refugee camp had been set up. He would take care of our horse as well. Grateful for both offers, father gave him some of mother's silver teaspoons she had carried all the way from home. Our two-month trek of over 500 miles had come to an end. Father found a place for all nine of us. It was an old coach's house, right on the shore of Lake Uton. Father got a job as a mechanic in a German auto garage. The rest of us stood in long lines. Often we were left empty-handed when the store ran out of bread and other supplies. On May 8, 1945, British army jeeps drove into Uton's town square. The war was over. When the dividing boundary between East and West Germany was drawn, it was a chilling realization to see that we had escaped the Russians by only 36 miles. Had we succumbed to the temptation to settle, we would have fallen back under the Soviets. I finished fifth and sixth grades while living in a refugee camp. During the course of those two years, there was considerable turnover in the student body. My closest girlfriends with whom I began school immigrated to different parts of the world. As some of the refugee camps were consolidated, new ones arrived. After the completion of the sixth grade, the next five school years were spent in gymnasium. It combined the elements of an American high school and a junior college. The curriculum was set and you had to take scheduled courses. As best I can remember, I took Latvian literature and grammar, algebra, world history, geography, history of religion, Latin, German, and English. Some of the subjects extended over a two-year period and concluded with a comprehensive exam. My studies were interrupted before the school year was over in 1951. We were relocating close to my father's place of employment. On March 16, 1951, we boarded the General Sturgis to Bromerhaven. On the designated hour of departure, everyone stood on deck to bid goodbye to Europe, our homeland, and the life we had known. It was a solemn moment as the ship eased into the North Sea. On the tenth day of our voyage, a dark line appeared on the western horizon. The new world unfolded before us. Keeping our emotions to ourselves, we greeted the Statue of Liberty. As we disembarked, we received $5 each and train tickets to Oaktown, Illinois. Father was stunned. He thought we would be staying in New York City. On March 27th, we arrived in Chicago and on to Oaklawn. Members of the First Congressional Church greeted us with warm smiles, making us feel at home in one of the Sunday school rooms at the church. A couple rented their trailer to us, where we lived for nearly a year. Our sponsors found jobs for my parents and a part-time job in a hardware store for me, where I kept giving out quarters instead of nickels for change. Oaklawn did not have a high school of its own, so students attended Blue Island High School in a neighboring Chicago suburb. Three days after our arrival, I enrolled there. The most advanced German class was my favorite. Study hall was a revelation. Several teachers patrolled the large room while all sorts of social activities took place, none of which could be classified as studying. The half-year of Latvian gymnasium, plus these two months, were considered equivalent to a freshman year. 
my sophomore year was also spent at Blue Island. Overall, it was a good experience. I was learning English rapidly and making friends. Excited and eager, I began my college career in the fall of 1953. Deciding on a major proved difficult. Each course I took opened new possibilities. Unequivocally, I can say I received a true liberal arts education. Geography and art courses were my favorites. My husband has joked that when I finally added up the credits earned, I discovered I had majored in geography. Originally, I had hoped to work in the Foreign Service. A visit from a State Department representative nixed that idea. It was the height of the Cold War, and I could not receive security clearance because all my relatives lived behind the Iron Curtain. The year after college, Sidney Richard Weiss, a Southern gentleman from Little Rock, Arkansas, came into my life. He was a talented master's degree student in piano at Northwestern. We attended free concerts at the university and went to parties with friends. We also enjoyed the wide variety of cultural activities offered in Chicago symphony concerts, plays, and special exhibits at the museums. Sydney earned my mother's approval by thoroughly enjoying her cooking. Father liked the fact that Sydney could play the piano and knew a lot about music, although it was too bad he wasn't Latvian. In the fall of 1958, I enrolled in university in Evanston, Illinois, to earn my certification and a master's degree in elementary education. To help defray my expenses, I became a live in babysitter for a family with four children. This was a practical addition to my education. At the same time, Sidney took his first music faculty position at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and we made plans for the future. On June 6, 1959, our wedding was held at the First Congressional Church of Oaklawn, the same church that had sponsored my family and given us a start to our new life. Sydney and I returned to Birmingham, and I started my first teaching job at the Barry Elementary School. Thirty-nine first graders sat in my classroom, trying to understand the fast-talking Yankee teacher. Sydney's next faculty position was at the College of the Ozarks near Branson, Missouri. Both of our children were born while we lived there, Sylvia in 1962 and David in 1965. In 1965, Sidney was appointed to the music faculty at Drury University, where he taught for 34 years, 15 of those serving as the department chair. Soon after our arrival, our friend Dorothy Padrone told me that I would love Drury. Having moved so many times, I came to expect that there would always be another move, another place to explore and leave. But I did come to love Drury College, as it was then called, and the Drury family. In 1967, I was offered a part-time position to teach a world geography course. It was an ideal setup while our children were small. Eventually, I had the opportunity to become a full-time employee at Drury, teaching in the day school and advising non-traditional students in the evening program. It was very rewarding to watch students grow and reach the goals they had set for themselves. Drury's outstanding administration and my colleagues contributed to a most positive work environment. I consider myself a very lucky person to have worked here until my retirement in June of 1998. And yes, I do love Drury and Springfield. Through the years, a most caring and considerate group of friends have lent support when needed it, shared laughter, fun, and good food, and enriched our lives.
what more can one ask? I am grateful for my rich heritage and proud of the Latvian people who have endured so much, yet retained their language and culture and fought to be free again. Having lived through times when freedom was taken away from us, I have cherished it every day, ever since we stepped ashore in this beautiful, wealthy land which I now call my country, the United States of America. No matter what part of the world we came from, all of us arrived here with hopes for a better future, for our children, grandchildren, and ourselves. I firmly believe that when we treat each other with respect, honoring our differences and rejoicing in them, we will continue to live as a free people. And maybe, just maybe, future conflicts will be settled without bloodshed and war. This is an edited version of Vice's story. You can read each story in its entirety at thelibrary.org or by clicking the link in the description of this post. The story keeper for Ilga Vice is Sydney Vice. Music is Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Colin Carr at freemusicarchive.org under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivative, 3.0 United States license. Story excerpts edited and read by Diana Dudenhafer. Mm-hmm.